Good evening, everyone. Um, my name is Betsy. I'm a member here, and I will be reading the sermon scripture passage for tonight. Um, tonight, we'll be reading from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. So I invite you to turn there in your Bible. Um, if you don't have a Bible, you can also look it up on your phone. We also do have some Bibles in the lobby. Um, you're welcome to grab one of those and keep that as our gift to you. So once again, we're reading from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is God's word. Good evening, Doxology. It's good to be with you guys. If you're new, joining us for the first time, uh, a warm welcome to you. My name is Steve. I'm lead pastor here. And this fall and beginning of next year, we are walking through the book of 1 Peter. And 1 Peter is all about... Um, so Peter's writing to a group of Christians. They're a diverse group of Christians because it's a bunch of different churches scattered around the Mediterranean. And essentially, the message of, of Peter is all about, here's what it looks like to live as somebody who belongs to Jesus in a culture where it's not smiled upon to be a Christian. And today marks the end of the first section of the letter. And next week, he's going to transition to talking about, okay, if you belong to Jesus, how do you relate to government? How do you relate to your bosses? How should your family dynamics look different as people who belong to Jesus? But so what Peter does to prime us for a more external-facing way of living is what he says essentially here is your view of the church is far too boring and small. And so you need to see rightly, like, what's going on here right now as we are gathered as a people, and when you spend time with your church family throughout the week, so that then you can live as people who belong to Jesus uh, in, in the world. And so as I was studying this passage, I thought about, like, how I viewed the church in the past, and I think how a lot of you guys are tempted to view the church often is something like this. So before I became a pastor... I worked in software, and I was interviewing for a technology firm that was fairly sizable in scope. And so I go to the building to interview, and you know, it was one of those like day-long interviews where you spend time with a lot of the employees, and they all get to know you and so forth. And so I'm in the lounge kitchen area toward the beginning of the day, and I'm talking with some of the developers, and this, this guy walks in. He's very plain looking, and he had just finished a workout, so he was sweaty, and he had a towel over his shoulder, and, you know, he was a little, he was a little dopey looking, you know, he just looked very ordinary, and so he walks in, and he goes, oh, are, are you the new recruit? And I was like, oh, you know, yes, I am, nice to meet you, but, you know, I wanted to go back and talk with the, the employees, because clearly, you know, they're the people who have a say on if I'm hired or not, and, but he, like, you know, sweaty workout man keeps trying to talk to me, and so finally I'm like, okay, I'll, I'll grace this guy with my presence and time. And so I just, you know, I'm talking with him, but I'm not really that engaged. And finally, finally, I just say something like, oh, you know, so who are you? Are you like a junior developer or something? And he goes, oh, I'm John. I'm the CEO. And it's like, oh, gosh, Steve, um, can we just rewind the, you know, the prior 10 minutes? There's this employee over by the coffee machine just cracking up. And but what happened, right? I was in the presence of somebody of high significance and influence. I mean, this guy had the greatest say on if I would be hired or not. This guy, he, he's written award-winning books on data mining. He was appointed by President Bush for five years to, like, guide technology as far as it concerned uh, national security. So this guy is, like, a very significant person. But 
because I thought he was just, he, had, he was ordinary, he had nothing to, you know, quote-unquote, offer me, I ignored him. I, di- I didn't view him as large as he was. You know, this was fitting of his station. And that, that's what we can do in the church, right? So Peter is saying, like, you have your few people that you like to hang out with, but overall, you know, you see a lot of people here, and they look like a guy who doesn't, they look like somebody who doesn't have much more to offer you than just a sweaty dude who comes into the kitchen and you have no idea who he is. Right? But when you actually grasp the significance of each person here in this room and the purpose that God has for the church, it changes your dynamic, both in terms of you know, your prioritization of these services, but also how you grow closer with one another as a family throughout the week. And so we're just going to look at what Peter says here about the church's identity and purpose under those two headings. So first, like, what does he say about the significance about each person in here and as us as a church corporate? But number two, what is our purpose in light of that identity? Okay, so just number one, what's our identity? Number two, what is our purpose in light of that identity? So first, number one, our identity. So verse nine, Peter says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. So Peter is quoting here Exodus 19. And anytime you hear a reference to the Old Testament, try not to, you know, let your eyes glaze over and think this is just academic information. Anytime you learn about the Israelites in the Old Testament, you're learning about your family tree, right? So by extension, you're going to learn more about who you are as a person. And so if you flip to Exodus uh, chapter 19, this was right after God lifted the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. He brings them to Mount Sinai on eagle's wings, essentially, because this is solely by grace. In Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6, he says, You will be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Right? So these words sound very, very similar, right? And so what happened was, is when God lifted the Israelites out of slavery, he said, you as my people are to live differently and you're to be a light to the nation so other people are attracted to me. However, the Israelites failed in this mission, so they rejected God. They didn't live as they should. So what God did is, after his people rejected him, is he sent Jesus who fulfilled perfectly what Israel, um, what Israel failed to do. And so what Peter's doing here is when he applies the same language to us, He's saying, if you are trusting in Jesus, who fulfilled what Israel couldn't do, now you are the new Israel, right? So Israel as it always should have been. And now you are called to be God's special possession. And through how you live, you are to be a light to the nations as well on the basis of this new covenant fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And before he says what we're supposed to do, he gives us our identity. So who are we? So let's just go through each of these. Um, We could do a whole study on each phrase. It's rich. Um, But here's just a brief summary on each one. So first, you're a chosen race, okay? Now, one thing I hear a lot of people say is something to the effect of, or not not a lot of people, but every now and then I hear somebody say something like this. You know, just one of the things that irritates me about Christians is they just, they think they're so righteous. You know, they think they're better than everybody because they're God's chosen people, right? And they're more moral and follow God's law and so forth. But as one commentator said, notice that Peter doesn't say, you're a choice people, says you're a chosen people. Big difference. So if he said you're a choice person, right, that would imply, oh, you're, you're the best of the best. So God chose you because you're so intelligent and you have good taste and you're a decent moral person. But no, you are, you are chosen. How God puts it in Deuteronomy 7 is I didn't save you and, and rescue you because you're so great. I saved you just because I wanted to love you. And so what this happens when you realize that God didn't save you or draw you into a relationship with him because you are so great 
this should give you an incredible humility that permeates this entire community. And so, because what happens is there's going to be people, and there are people, including me, in this church who either you're you're just not going to click with them, or they're going to say something unintentionally that offends you, or they're just not going to seem, you know, very interesting or helpful. But what happens is, is if any time you harbor bitterness or even just indifference and, like, keep people at arm's length in the church, implicit in there and what it betrays is what you're saying is, I'm a choice person, but you're not. You had to be chosen. When you realize that God loved you and set his heart on you when you had nothing to offer, he just, he just wanted to love you, this gives you an incredible humility that helps you move toward other people. Okay, so our church should be an incredibly humble people because we're chosen, not choice. Next, what does he say? We'll get to royal priesthood in a minute. He says, a holy nation. Okay, so holy, as we saw a few weeks ago, if you're holy, this means you belong to God. And because you belong to God, this has connotations of you are set apart. So you should live differently compared to other people around you. And when you look at Israel, the law God gave them, how they were supposed to live was to be radically different from the nation. So they were supposed to be very generous with their money. So giving their money to the church, to the poor, instead of keeping it for themselves. They were supposed to care deeply for the immigrant. They were not supposed to show bias toward people of other ethnicities. They were to take life very seriously. And also, they were, to, they were called to have a sex ethic, where sex is uh, for people who are in marriage. And so are we as the new Israel called to live that way as well. Now, depending on where you live and the political affiliations of your friends, some of those values, your friends are going to be like, yes, that's amazing. I'm so glad you hold it. But other, you know, depending on, again, on where you live or your friends, they're going to look at some of those moral values and go, mm, that doesn't sound quite right. What Peter is saying here is because you belong to God, you're called to be set apart. You're not just supposed to display Christ through your words, but how you live. It's supposed to look different than other people. But you're not just wholly set apart. You're a holy nation. And that word nation is the word ethnos, right? So like ethnic group, you're a new ethnic group. And so what Peter is saying here is when you are born again, as Peter says in chapter 1, and you're brought into Jesus' family, you are now brought into a new race, a new ethnicity, if you will, that makes the bonds within this family deeper than, you know, an interest group, a club, or an ethnicity. And what's great is you don't lose your individuality, like, you know, a philosophy like Buddhism would teach. You keep your, you keep your ethnicity, you keep all the unique parts about you, how your culture has shaped you, but the deepest part about you is that you treasure King Jesus because you belong to him now. And same thing with everybody else in the church. And one of the reasons why we are prioritizing becoming a deeper family over the next years, we talked about in our member gatherings, so spending quantity time with one another, not just here, but throughout the week as well, is because if we're going to proclaim the excellencies of Jesus, which Peter's going to get to in a minute, if people don't see behind our call to receive Jesus, a community that's beautiful in its love, a community that's beautiful in its affection, a a community that's beautiful in its... Um, depth and love for one another, then they're not going to take the call of Jesus very seriously, right? Because I mean, so our churches, we're pretty similar when it comes to age. You know, most people here between the age of 20 and 45, um, most people here are pretty educated. However, there, there are differences here in terms of ethnicity, in terms of background, in terms of temperament. And so we need to act this way because we're a new nation, a new ethnic group together. Okay, and then he says, a people for his own possession. So here's what I love about this. So my mom, I don't know if any of you all's 
moms or dads did something like this, but when I was growing up, and even into college, my mom would write my last name in Sharpie on like all of my belongings. So on the tag of my jacket, on my lunchbox, on my backpack, she'd write read on it. So then if my belonging, you know, got mixed up with something else, people would see and go, oh, this is a Reed's possession. This belongs to a Reed. Just last week I put on a jacket and I was like, oh, it says my name on it from my mom writing it on there like 15 years ago. So when Peter says you are God's own possession, it's as if God has written in Sharpie, like on each person in this room, this person belongs to the Most High. And when you combine that with Peter saying you're a royal priesthood, so royal meaning you, you are in the service of the great king, there, there's a real sense where, and one author put it this way, when you look at the most ordinary looking person in the church, you should be thinking to yourself, like as you're engaging with them, hello, your majesty. But that sounds a little corny, but, but he's right. Because this is the dignity of each and every person in this room. And so when you get that each person here and you belong to the Most High, you know, his name is written on you, that, change, that should change, right? Even just in terms of how you think about showing attention to other people or pursuing one another people, listening to one other people, listening to other people. And then finally, he says, in terms of our identity, he says, you're a royal priesthood. So this is, this is priesthood, it's probably my favorite one, um, but here's just one aspect about being a priesthood. So the priests were called to, one, represent the people to God. So this means, you know, praying on behalf of the people, offering sacrifices on behalf of the people. But it went with both ways. Priests were also called to represent God to the people, meaning coming along the people and bringing God's power and compassion to people so they could experience him in a special way. And so when Peter says, you are all priests now, those who are united to Jesus, you are given the sacred privilege of coming alongside other people in this church in very ordinary ways and helping them experience and know God in ways that cannot happen without you. And this is something that our, our world craves. So uh, David Foster Wallace, he, is, he was a brilliant author who sadly took his life in 2008. And I came across this quote during an interview he gave in the Review of Contemporary Fiction. This was back in the 90s. And so for Foster Wallace, uh, he had an obsession with connection because he knew that key to healing his, the addictions that he had and his own narcissism was he had to establish deep, connection, deep connections with other people who would actually come alongside him. And he says in this interview, he goes, we all suffer alone in the real world. True empathy is impossible. But if a piece of fiction can allow us imaginatively to identify with the character's pain, we might then more easily conceive of others identifying with our own. We become less alone inside. And you, you, you hear what he's saying? He's saying, in, in the real world, I can't find people who will really empathize me or, with, or identify with me and hold me in my brokenness and hold me in my sorrow because either they just, they'll reject me when they like see who I really am inside or they may want to help me, but they can't actually shoulder my burdens because they actually don't understand me. And this haunted him for his entire life. So when Peter's saying, you're a royal priesthood to one another, he's saying the thing that David Foster Wallace craved is actually possible in this community. Why? Because of the foundation of our community. 
At the end of verse 10, he says, once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And that's a quote from the book of Hosea, where it's a, mirac- it's a marvelous story where God compares us, the people of God, to, uh, to a prostitute who's repeatedly unfaithful to her husband. And even though he continues to offer her his affection and, and commitment, she rejects him again and again and again and sleeps with other men. And so what God's saying in the book of Hosea is, even though you reject me over and over and over, even though I want so badly to know you, I'm not going to judge you. I'm not going to say, okay, fine, you don't want me. I'm going to cut myself off from you. I'm going to show you mercy. And so then what he does is in the person of Jesus, rather than judging you, Jesus Christ goes to the cross and is judged for your sins so that when you trust in Jesus, you have life eternal. And now, now rather than being identified as somebody who I have not received mercy, you are identified as somebody who has received mercy. And why this change? This is the, the church is the only community who can have at its core a group of people who've received mercy. And when it, when it really hits you that this is what I've done to Jesus, and yet this is what Jesus did for me, one, this enables you to, to be vulnerable in your community because now there's a safety when you see that Jesus really sees all of you. And yet, loves you to, to, to the mountain peaks, that gives you enough, where you can be safe to open up to other people about your weaknesses because you know that Christ already sees all of you and loves you. And it makes it safe for other people to open up to you because they know, if you know that you're somebody who's received mercy when you, haven't, when you didn't deserve it, you're not going to be somebody who you know, raises your eyebrows at something they share or just gets really impatient with them when they can't seem to get it together because you're a person who, who's received mercy. And so I, I just, I, I wish, I hope he heard this. You know, I hope somebody had told David Foster Wallace, you know, what you're looking for is possible in the church for somebody to actually hold you in your sorrow and hold you, hold you in your brokenness. And for any of you here, you need to know that that's, that's possible for you too. This is who we are as the church. And what an, what an incredible privilege and identity. So now what does Peter say in light of this unparalleled identity that you're given? Now what's your purpose? Because the purpose isn't to remain insular or siloed away from the world. No, you're to go into the world. And so what are you called to do? Second half of verse 9. So why are you God's own possession? That you may, so this is why, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. I, I love this verse. I love this verse. So here's a few things that he's getting at. So first, you're called to proclaim the excellencies. In other words, you need to use words. Okay, so there's an oft-repeated phrase, and I understand the sentiment where it goes something like this. Preach the gospel wherever you go, and when necessary, use words. And the sentiment under that, right, is to try to correct for Christians who just want to jam the gospel down people's throats, and I get that. However, and Peter, when he says you, you need to be a priesthood, you actually care for people through deeds in the world. However, if the gospel is just about following the moral teachings of Jesus, then you could share the gospel through words. Because people say, okay, that's how you live, so therefore if I want to know Jesus, then I should live the same way. But if the gospel is news, and it is, how do you, how do you communicate something like you're a sinner and can only be saved by grace through faith, not by works, through the finished work of Christ? How are you supposed to communicate that through actions? Like, like what are you supposed to do? You, know, you need to declare it. You need to use words. 
And so I think in our church, because one of the things that I love about you guys is you do want to be so careful about, you know, being that person who's just like trying to shove Jesus down people's throat when they don't want it. However, Peter's challenge and my challenge to you guys is I think where we err is we go too far with, you know, wanting to make sure somebody is going to be open to the gospel before we actually share who Jesus is. I mean, Peter's writing to Christians who are in a culture way more hostile to Christianity than we're in. And so we need to be more quick to, like, before we're, you know, 80, 90 percent sure that somebody isn't going to think less of us for sharing Jesus, it's just, you know, very simple things. Like, after you ask questions and listen to the stories of the friends that you're in, just saying something as simple as, you know, hey, thanks so much for sharing your story. Would you mind if I just shared a little bit about, you know, who I am and what shaped me? And in your story, just share a little bit about who Jesus is and how he's changed you. Because the gospel requires words to tell other people how can they be saved. But it's not just that you use words. Okay, so how are you supposed to communicate this? And here's what's great is he says, you're to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So in other words, when you tell people about Jesus, fundamentally what your mission is isn't to convince somebody of the rationality of the Christian faith, even though it is rational, and uh, Peter will address that in chapter 3. Fundamentally, what you're, what you're called to do is not to convince them that, like, you know, the Bible is the inerrant word of God or try to, like, show them why Jesus is the only way to God, although these things are true. Fundamentally, what we're called to do is show that Jesus is desirable, right? To show that God is good. Because our friends aren't brains on sticks, they're hearts who have desires and hopes. And so the question for you is, like, is it clear to people who know you and who know you're a Christian, that you enjoy being a Christian? Or do you feel like being a Christian is like something you have to apologize for? Or is it clear to them that Jesus is beautiful to you and you want them to savor Jesus as you taste Jesus? Because why? He's called you into his wonderful light. And so... Um, two things that can help with this in terms of recapturing the wonder in being a Christian. So one is when uh, he says, proclaim the excellence of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. There should be a wonder about you. So there's this pastor named David Martin Lloyd-Jones who was a British minister in the, in the 1900s. And uh, a question he would ask people in his church to help shepherd them, would he, would just, he would just ask them, are you a Christian? And so I'm going to do that with you guys now. Uh, I did it for myself. So, are you a Christian? And just answer silently, you know, answer that question. Are you a Christian? And what Lloyd-Jones said was, often, like, the two most common responses he would get was, one, somebody would say, well, I'm trying really hard. He would say, okay, then you don't understand how Christianity works, where it's not about trying really hard. It's God has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. It's purely by grace. It's not about trying really hard. But he said what the other answer was is he would just, you know, somebody would come into his office and say, are you a Christian? And the person would respond with something like, yeah, of course I'm a Christian. And he said, if your response is something like, yeah, I'm a Christian, or of course I'm a Christian, he says, what that shows is there's no, there's no wonder there. Because if you're saying, yeah, of course I'm a Christian, like what, what you're implying is, yeah, because I was such great material for God to save. Or there's a part of you that believes it really is about your good works. Instead, your response should be something like, yeah, I'm a Christian, and I, I can't believe it. 
like me, a Christian, God decided to, to choose me and to love me. There, there's a wonder there when you see you've been drawn into his wonderful light. Okay, and one of the ways that you, that you get this wonder is, uh, is knowing, first, it's two parts. So first, notice that Peter says, he has called you out of darkness. So when God calls you, this isn't just an invitation where he, you know, he sends out an invitation like, please receive the gospel. And then he sits back and hopes that you receive it. You know, because what God says, God does. Okay, there, there's no difference between his words and his power and his deeds. And so somebody in our community group uh, this past week even, they, they brought up, because we were talking about this idea, how like when Jesus uh, came to the tomb of Lazarus when he was dead, Jesus said, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus came out. Okay, because that's the power of Jesus' word. In fact, I heard somebody say one time, if Jesus hadn't specified Lazarus come out, all of the dead would have risen, because that, that's the power of Jesus' words. And so when uh, Peter says here, he's called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This is reminiscent of Genesis 1, where God looked at at the whole universe that was dark, and he said, let there be light, and there was light. And Paul, in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, says, if you are in Christ, you're a new creation. Behold, the old has passed away, the new has come. And what this means is, if you trust in Jesus, it's because God looked into your darkened heart and said, let there be light. And you saw the grandeur of Jesus. And you said, Jesus, yes, I want you to save me and I want to follow you. And it should fill you with wonder. And number two, how you recapture this wonder of being called into his marvelous light is... I think the key here is where it says you're a people for his own possession. So in Exodus 19, uh, what, what God says there is you are my treasured possession. And so uh, translations here for 1 Peter 2, like the NIV will say, you are God's special possession. So what, is, what does it mean to have a treasured possession or a special possession? Some of you were here during our first ever service in this building, and we talked about this in Titus chapter 2. So to have a treasured possession means it's the thing that you have. It's the thing that you have that makes you feel the most wealthy. So if you, if you lose everything else, but you still have your treasured possession, you're wealthy. You know you're rich. And how I was thinking about this is, so when I'm driving home from work, I can think about like a number of things to, you know, what makes me feel wealthy? And I can think about the car I'm driving, you know, so I could sell that for, you know, a number of thousand dollars. I can think about the designer jeans I'm wearing that a friend gave me seven years ago, not these jeans. Um, I can think about my bank account, not always the most helpful. Um, I can think about the, my Google Drive folder with, like, that has hundreds of sermons in it now. Like, that is pretty precious to me, and I would, I would cry if somebody hacked into that. Some of you are hackers here, I think, and so please don't hack into it and delete all my sermons. That would make me very sad, but but you know what makes me feel the most wealthy? It's when I park my car and I walk into my house and uh, Titus and Kelsey are there in the living room. And a number of you know that according to doctors and common sense, uh, we couldn't have a child. And so Titus is the most expensive gift that I've ever been given and didn't even know that I wanted him along with Kelsey. And so what happens is I walk in the door 
And Titus, when he sees me, he starts laughing. And maybe because he's making fun of me, I don't know. But, but he, he, he starts laughing, and then he, he crawls toward me. And I pick him up, and when I hold Titus in my arms, there's one thought in my mind, and that thought is, I am, I am so unbelievably wealthy. Like, I could lose this house, I could lose my car, I could lose my Google Drive folder, and I would still feel unbelievably rich. And so what is it, and I'm a, I'm a finite being whose capacity for love is so limited. So what does it mean when the Almighty Magnificent says, Magnificent God says, you are my treasured possession? What it means is, is God says, I own everything. And so when I look around at everything that belongs to me, I look at the snow, I look at the snow-capped mountains, I look at the shimmering oceans, I look at the swirling stars, I look at the heavenly hosts. But it's not until I see you and your sorrows and your happiness and in everything that assails you, and I know that you belong to me and one day I'm going to see you face to face, that's, that's when my heart swells up with joy, and I feel wealthy. You know, there's, there's a lot of talk nowadays about identity. Like, how do I know who I am? It's in all the movies. It's in all the cultural narratives. You will not find any identity like this. And it's true of you, it's true of every single person in the church. And God, is, God calls you, as someone who has his treasured possession, to come together with the other people in this church to be a tapestry that displays to the rest of the world the grace and grandeur and mercy of God. So hear Peter's words one more time. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people who are God's own treasured possession, that you may declare the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, I pray that you will help us to see with new eyes Uh, what is true of each person in this room, Lord, um, that we have so much to receive from one another. And I pray that you will help us to treasure and rest in this identity that we've been given, Father. And as we grow deeper as a family, um, that this will not be something that stays here, but it will be something that leads other people to saving faith in the name of Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.